Hold on, car. This is the Make America Great Again podcast, produced and recorded by Cody Burkett, the Arizona Wine Monk. In this podcast, we explore wines from all 50 states in the United States of America. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Make America Great Again podcast. I'm your host, Cody Vladimir Burkett, CSW. I'm Megan, Benny Beatty Drinky, also CSW. I am James McNew, who should be in Ireland right now, but got robbed and had to come home early, so here I am. Yay! And? I'm Ginger McKenzie, the owner of Vino Zona. So Ginger's joining us again for Ohio. What we've got here is the En Plein Air Pet Nat Method Ancestral from Vermilion Valley Vineyards. I encountered this vineyard courtesy of someone in the tasting room, and I asked them, hey, what do you think is your best vineyard in Ohio? And they recommended these guys, so I sent a message. And Joe Juniper, who is uh, the owner and winemaker, as well as, a, I think he's in the Ohio Grape Growers Association as well. And he's like, oh, yeah, here, send me six bottles uh, of his good stuff. And so I thought I'd start with this Petnat, because the most famous wine from Ohio historically was a sparkling Catawba from Nicholas Longsworth. Uh, Nicholas Longsworth basically was responsible for producing a sparkling Catawba that blew all the charts away in a competition in France against Champagne and won. Um, what year was this? This was 1860s, okay, sometime yeah. in the 1850s, 1860s. We'll talk more about the history of Ohio wine in a moment. And I thought, before we call him, let's crack this open. Will it make a fun noise? It would help if I could open it. That was kind of fun. Mm-hmm. Slight bit of fun there. Like the... So this is a field blend is fragrant. from his vineyard. Approximately 75% Pinot Noir. Approximately 15% mm. Muscat Autonelle with uh, a little bit of Lemberger. And... Muller Thurgau. Right? I didn't expect that. Right? <laughs> right? I stuck my nose in there and it went all the way into my brain. Yeah, it's, <laughs> it is potent. Yeah. Oh my god. I didn't expect that like at I all. I could smell it when you poured it. It smells like a strawberry field. Yeah, strawberry right. fields yes. forever. I have oh, Arizona yes. aller- spring allergies and I can still smell this. Yeah, yeah we, we all do. <laughs> so say we all. <laughs> what else is there in there? This is... Oh my goodness! This is yeasty, yeasty it is, too. Yeah. Good yeasty, like like yeah, again, yeah, it's champagne. Like a, it almost smells kind of beer like. Like it a, reminds me of like when you first like when you're making bread dough before you put it in the oven. Yeah. It smells like dough, like bread. You bread guys dough. keep talking about it. I'm gonna get a picture of it over here. Yeah, the taste is kind of yeast. Well, not it's very yeasty. <laughs> there's yeah, something there's, else though. I can't. In the oh, nose, yeah. No. There's something. Yeah, something very pungent. Yeah, I know. Like there's something like really strongly floral, but I feel like it's kind of a unique flower. Yeah. But then there's like a medicinal flower of some mm-hmm. sort. But I feel like I get like a really dark berry <sighs> too, like um, blackberry. Not I don't want to say blackberry, but maybe something. almost a little bit of persimmon too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm. <clears throat> but yeah, the yeast is. The yeast is strong in this. Oh my goodness. 
Mm-hmm. Huh. Don't think I've ever had anything quite like that before. No. no. <laughs> hmm. Makes me. It does make me think of like a really fruity beer almost. Mm-hmm. Yeah, almost like a lambic. Character. In a weird. W- a what? A lambic. I don't know what that is. It's a. So lambic bell- is a type of sour beer, uh, originally Belgian style. Mm. Um, which often uses fruit. Uh, some sometimes are known as creeks, I think. Yeah. <sighs> it's got this beautiful sort of orangey pink color too. Mm-hmm. Also, um, straw, like fresh cut hay. I could see that. In the summer. Yeah. Uh, it's got a grassy character, too. Kind of like that Illinois Cabernet Franc we had many months ago. I do get a little bit of that sort of mo- uh, moist character more on the palate, but n- that's not the smell that I was talking about on the palate. I like smelling it, though. Yeah. It's got a, be- it's got a little bit of a floral character, too. Now that too. that, yeah, whatever what we, that what intense, we it, the intensity's burned off a little bit. Yeah, it's, it's toning uh, down, but it's still really potent. It is. The nose on this is intense. Uh, Joe Juniper describes this as a kitchen sink field blend. (laughs) Fermentation temp was the mid-70s, no oak. The fruit was blended at the crusher, allowed to ferment with indigenous yeast without any SO2 addition. It was bottled at roughly 1% remaining uh, residual sugar to complete fermentation Mm. for about three atmosphere bars pressure. He also uh, called this a plain air. Partly because it's a natural <laughs> wine, but also because of the label was a plain air painting. But um, I'll ask you more about that when I, I give him a call here momentarily after. I almost I... get like a metallic mm-hmm. aroma going on. I can see that. It's interesting because there's so polished much bronze. Mm. There's so much going on. It's mm-hmm. hard to pick out. I know, right? <laughs> I love the so for so long, people have poo-pooed the style of wine as pet nats, as, as primitive and. It's even known as the ancestral method in French, and I like them. They're a lot of fun, but I'm kind of weird like that. I like the nose better than the than the flavor, personally. I'm kind of with you on that. Yeah. Yeah. Like, I don't dislike it by any means. It's no. just, I think it's one of those things that takes a bit yeah. to, to get Your a Your brain bit. doesn't have a compartment to put it in, because yeah. I mean, I've never had anything like that no. before. I feel like it's a... And I, I can't wrap my head around what's happening. Yeah. <laughs> It's like we took like a really fruity but not sweet wine, threw some beer into it. But there's there's kind of like a hard alcohol aspect too, and I'm not sure what. Like I get like a distilled something. I don't know. But the fruit is very faint. It's there, but not on the palate. Yeah. Right. Because I just get fruit. bakery. It smells like a bakery where they're baking fresh bread mm-hmm. too. Yeah, a lot of that. I like that. I really dig this. Uh, it's a lot of fun. So uh, let's give Joe a call and hope that... Uh, I'm going to say it's not going to be too late, is it? Well, I texted him, uh, well, 20 minutes ago. Oh, okay, I see. Hope my phone audio works. Hello! Hello! Welcome to the podcast. How are you? Good, good. Sorry I'm silhouetted against the sky here. It looks kind of creepy and ominous. <laughs> Why don't you uh, go into a little bit of what uh, what prompted you to do Pet Nat, what inspired you, a little bit about how to make this style, too, because this is a style we've never actually covered on the podcast yet. Yeah, sure. So we have a project. I, uh, a little bit of a quick background about myself. I've been, been in the wine industry since I was 13. Uh, I love plants. That's kind of what got me into in all of this. Uh, it's been steady growing uh, 
several different wineries, several brands. And eventually we're going to start a, uh, a bit of a natural wine uh, brand. I think we're going to dub Juniper Unchained. Uh, kind of a uh, quick Tarantino uh, type-esque. Uh, I like that. You know, kind of Unchained, Django Unchained is probably one of the best movies in the world. So <laughs> ever made. I agree. So uh, we're going to uh, we're going to start a, a, a very small... Uh, boutique style natural line it's not going to be uh, it's not going to be uh, incredibly diverse but uh, fairly simple fairly small and this was just kind of a look into uh, into the natural concept so pretty much everything that we do at this point uh, although we blur the lines between conventional and natural ultimately we're still conventional you know we're still using sulfites we're still uh uh, we, we are still spraying in our vineyards. Uh, we are still rather conventional. Uh, and so this, uh, this pet net was just kind of a, uh, a brief look into, uh, into what the, uh, the future may hold for us. It's tasty. Uh, we've all been... So, yeah, so, so uh, pet net is a... Uh, uh, I, I don't know what label you have on it. Uh, do you have a real uh, a real label or like a taped on label? It's the it's the taped on label. Taped on label, yeah, the the, the beautiful one, the beautiful print out there. So, uh, pretty much, it's it's exactly what the label says. It's it's risky. It's uh, unfiltered, unfined, no sulfites, uh, no sulfites added, I should say. And uh, but you know, really, Mother Nature in the flesh. So uh, roughly 75% Pinot Noir, 25% Muscat Atenel. Uh, there are some very minor components, Mueller Turgayo and a little bit of Lemberger thrown in as well, but very, very, very minor, just but a, a handful of percent. So uh, basically spend all the time you want in the vineyard, you know, get your grapes where you want them, uh, pick grapes, press grapes, as you're fermenting your juice, obviously with wild ambient yeast being natural, uh, things are starting to ferment. Before it's finished fermenting, throw it in a bottle. Done. And it's it's very uh, it's very hands off, uh, but it's say risky and unpredictable because uh, it's all about the timing of the bottle. So if uh, if you go to the bottle too late, uh, it's going it's not going to have enough uh, residual sugar to be able to kind of carbonate in the bottle and uh, the carbonation can kind of give it some uh, uh, some stability so that carbonic acid helps uh, helps displace some uh, some oxygen and then also gives it some microbial stability whereas uh, some of the uh, metabisulfite the sulfites would uh, otherwise in a more conventional approach but uh, in this case in this case being without you have to kind of rely on on uh, carbonic acid, so it, it, it gives some stability to the wine. So if you bottle too late, not enough sugar, not enough carbonation, not only is the wine going to be kind of flat and boring, uh, but uh, it's also uh, going to be uh, a little bit more unstable. However, the flip side, if you bottle too early, you could do a number of things. Number one, uh, Whenever you open the bottle, you're going to be shooting the saline, spraying the saline, and you, know, you have too much carbonation going on in there. And then, of course, worst case scenario, if you have way too much carbonation, 
uh, you could actually be uh, creating little bombs. The bottles that we have chosen uh, only hold like uh, three and a half atmospheres, so not a whole lot. You could easily overpressurize them and create uh, you know little bottle bombs if you uh, if you overcarb. So it's a uh, it's kind of a fun project. We made uh, around 250 cases or so, I believe 50 to 75, something like that. And uh, it was actually just released uh, for sale uh, two weeks ago. Nice. Oh, nice. So how is it uh, selling in the tasting room right now? Uh, it's, it's, selling, it's, it's sold pretty good over the last two weeks, uh, actually very well. Um, you know, in the state of Ohio, we, we, uh, you know, we're, we're constantly educating a clientele on, on different things. You know, people, uh, uh, people need a little bit of help, but they're, they're very interested. They're, they're intrigued. Uh, you know, it's a, uh, it's a, uh, it's very much a talking point, if nothing else. Uh, they come in, you talk about method ancestral, where it's, uh, um, you know, the oldest form of champagne in the world. And so it's, it's a talking point. They get intrigued, they try it, and then ultimately the wine sells them. So it's, it's been selling pretty well. Uh, the, uh, actually, the label itself, the picture on the label, uh, has been uh, rather famous uh, at our tasting room, uh, at our Vermilion Valley tasting room, I should say. And uh, that being, uh, it's, a, uh, it's a picture... It's a painting uh, done in the style called On Plan Air. So it's, it's, uh, it says it on the label. You know, it's, it's outdoor painting, basically. So we had a guy uh, we dubbed Painter Bob. Uh, <laughs> Painter Bob sat in her front yard for like uh, almost 300 hours in, in 2017. And so pretty much, I mean, almost every day, uh, throughout the summer of 2017, we had this guy sitting in our front yard with an umbrella painting our building. And so uh, that alone has kind of created a, uh, a talking point and a bit of an attraction. What grapes have you found that work really, really well in the Ohio area where you're growing? Yeah. What grapes aren't good? What are the major challenges you've had growing in the vineyard and in the cellar? Sure, sure. Yeah, so we are almost exclusively vinifera. Uh, we we have a little bit of uh, a little bit of Traminet and a little bit of Chamberson as far as our hybrids go. But that makes of in the grand scheme is only going to make up around two percent of our total production. You know, the the biggest issues we have is uh, is winter damage. Uh, throughout the summer, we have uh, very nice growing degree days up here. I am west of Cleveland. Okay. And so I actually sit at the southernmost tip of Lake Erie. And, and is what this does is this gives us around 3,500 growing degree days uh, annually. Uh, this past year we had closer to 3,600. And uh, to, to put that in perspective, uh, I, I believe Oak Knoll is, is right around there, 3,500, 3,600 uh, growing degree days, Oak Knoll, Napa Valley. So uh, as far as ripening and stuff like that, uh, we, we have really no issues uh, ripening Cabernet Franc, Cabernet Sauvignon, things like Sangiovese, and so on. But uh, but what we do have, although we have you know nice warm nice warm summers, we have cold winters. And so, for example, this past year uh, we were down in around negative 10 degrees Fahrenheit, uh, which is pretty pretty darn cold for these varieties. 
and uh, quite a few varieties have been beaten up because of that. In 2014, 2015, we experienced what's called a polar vortex. Ooh. So uh, Gulf Stream gets all kind of muddled up and uh, sends down some Arctic air uh, from way up north and ultimately displaces our warm air. And we were down to like negative 17 degrees Fahrenheit yeah, for, nice. uh, for uh, several mm-hmm. days on end, ultimately taking our entire crop that year from yeah. us. Ooh, so, uh, not the ideal, uh, not the ideal situation. But uh, ultimately, we recognize Vinifera to be be able to be produce the uh, the best uh, wine in the world. You know, if if, if if really if you want to be able to produce solid wine, you got to start with good varieties and good varieties. Uh, you got to plant good varieties and deal with the goods and bads in the vineyard. So. There are a lot of uh, hybrids going in, a lot of Minnesota hybrids going in in, in my neck of the woods. Uh, but the biggest issue uh, with these Minnesota hybrids is uh, although they're hardy to say negative 30, negative 35 degrees Fahrenheit, uh, throughout the summer uh, they are created for uh, for Minnesota for cooler uh, cooler summers. And whereas we're at 36, uh, 35, 3600 growing degree days, uh, things ripen way too fast. Ooh, yeah. And uh, mm. the sugars skyrocket as acids are still real high. And it really creates an unbalanced uh, unbalanced juice. So, uh, in my opinion, uh, although uh, to each their own, uh, it really doesn't fit into our program. So... As far as the best varieties that we do, uh, Cabernet Franc is is always our number one. Uh, it's our number one seller year after year. It's very consistent for us. And uh, but following, you know, shortly after, Pinot Gris, Pinot Noir, and Gewürztraminer are all all pretty close. You know, fighting for uh, the the number two spot. But we we do grow 30 different varieties, close to 30, 28 different varieties at this point will be 30 as of this year, uh, 30 different varieties in total. And uh, the reason we do so, I uh, say 30 varieties, uh, uh, you go to a, a box store and you probably can't find 30 different California <laughs> varieties <laughs> on, uh, on the shelves. If you spend a good day visiting Arizona tasting rooms... Every single variety has its own kind of style, its own uh, spray program, its own uh, uh, vineyard maintenance, and so on. And it is, it is, it can be rather daunting. But the reason we do so is uh, we're incredibly variable in this part of the world. So some years, like I say, 3,600 growing degree days, but some years uh, will be a thousand less. We'll be at 2,600 growing degree days. Uh, we get a ton of precipitation some years. Last year we finished out at about plus 15 inches over average, uh, which is you know, 45, 50 inches in total, which is astronomical during the growing season. Uh, but then some years, uh, you know, we'll be in drought, and so we'll get very little rain through the uh, through the heart of the growing season. And so the reason we grow so many different varieties is it's kind of hedging our bets. We acknowledge Makes that sense. not every given variety in every given year is going to be a uh, you know a, a grand slam, but we will have a number of varieties in every single year that really uh, you know are standouts. One last question from me. I'm gonna 
pass this around if anyone else has any questions to ask. Uh, have you guys tried any Georgian varietals in your vineyard, like Saparavi, Riquetsli? Yeah, no, uh, Saparavi, Catatelli, you know, uh, there are some people in the state of Ohio that's doing it. You know, for us, it, it, it never really... Um, it never really piqued my interest. I, I, I have a lot of Italian stuff going in at this point. Uh, we got Roboli Giallo, Moscato Giallo, Arneas, uh, Sagrantino. Whoa, um, you're going to have to send me Sagrantino. some of that Sagrantino when that comes in. <laughs> Sagrantino is one of my favorite varietals of all time. Yeah, yeah, me too. And uh, it, it, it'll likely be, uh, you know, a major blending component. But I'm, I'm interested in the better seasons and the better vintages uh, to see what it'll do, be able to do on its own for us. There's, there's very little of it uh, grown in the east. You know, I think, uh, you know, probably less than a couple of acres in total. I would, I would assume. But it's a, uh, I, I love the wine, and uh, we grow what we like and uh hope for the best <laughs> yeah that, that's the best way to do it do any of you guys have questions mm -mm. No, I think so. okay. um food pairing oh yeah what would you uh what kind of good food would you pair, pair with this one? Oh, that's from james food, food to pair with a pet net <laughs> you know i i haven't really thought about it every time we've had it we've We've kind of had it as a uh, as a as a pre uh, kind of a pre toast to a to a wine tasting. Uh, we did I, I actually did feature it uh, several months ago before it even had a label, but I featured it in a uh, a private uh, food wine pairing, and we paired it with the salad. Uh, <laughs> salad is kind of a kind of a goofy thing to try to pair with anyway. And I figure pet nat. Uh, with that strawberry component yeah. to the, yeah. to the pet yeah. I think it would be good with uh, fresh it's, baked it's bread. Kind of a, kind of a difficult <laughs> pairing in itself. So, uh, it, it went with the salad quite well, actually. It was uh, had some grapefruit, uh, grapefruit on top and a raspberry nice. vinaigrette. What yeah. excellent so it, it, opening. It did all right, but as far yeah. as a pairing goes, it's, it's, it's a bit of a goofy, uh, goofy combination. I think that works great. Mm -hmm. I, I think a salad is a phenomenal pairing. I think so, too. Well, thank you very, very much, Joe, for joining us uh, this late in the game. Uh, apologies for, for the delay. No, that's okay. I will let you know when uh, I get this posted. Sure, absolutely. Thank you. Thank you once again sure. for, for your kindness for the podcast. Yep, absolutely. Thank you. Have a good night. You too. Super nice guy. Mm -hmm. He is. He's super knowledgeable, awkward. too, right? You know, it's, it's dark outside right now, but you should have seen. I could see how big your eyes got, even in this dark. So, before we close, uh, we have to go, of course, through the history. Uh, but also, we have the ceremonial book reading because we have a new varietal to talk about. Even though we can't read it. Uh, but that's what flashlights are for. <laughs> but now I've got to figure out where the book went. It's behind you. You need a little lamp out here, Code. I know. I know. <laughs> so who would like to read about Muscat Autonel? I'll do it since I got the light. Alrighty. That's good. I'm not in the mood to read. I'll let you read the label. No. It's too dark. I'm too blind for this shit. <laughs> <laughs> Better too blind than too blonde. <laughs> so Muscat Autonel... As uh, one of the many muscats, and people, when they think of muscat, people think that muscato is one grape, and really there are 27 different, or some ridiculously obscene number, 
of Muscat grapes. Um, the big two that are used for Moscato are uh, Muscat of Alexandria and Muscat Canelli, also known in French as Muscat Apetit Grand. Muscat with the tiny berries. <laughs> tiny. Uh, Muscat Autonel is a, a pre, is a third one, and James will begin the reading. <clears throat> so Muscat Autonel, a soft, grapey French variety, used for both dry and sweet wines, particularly in Alsace and Eastern Europe. Uh, principal synonyms, Muscadel Autonel in South Africa, Muscat Autonel, Bulgaria, Muscat Autonel, Germany, Austria, Slovenia, Muscatali or Autonel Muscatali in Hungary, and Tamaliosa Autone in Romania. Origins and parentage. Muscat Autonel is a seedling obtained in Angers in the Val de Loire, France, by the wine breeder Jean-Pierre Vibert in 1839 and later it released in 1852 by his chief gardener Robert. It was named in honor of a certain H. Autonel. Vibert did not keep track of the parents and the seedling was thought to be a chassilas and crossed with a Muscat de Samour uh, cross. Until DNA profiling at INRA, the Institut National de la Recherche Agronomique in Montpellier, southern France, corrected this to a Chasselas uh, and Muscat de Eisenstadt cross. <laughs> it was Muscat. <coughs> <coughs> it was used to breed Matre Muscatali and Muscat Morowski. Uh, its viticultural characteristics, low vigor, early ripening, well-suited to clay limestone soils, susceptible to couleur, downy mildew, and botrytis bunch rot. The berries are able to accumulate high sugar levels and produce aromatic wines, both dry and sweet, although acidity levels are generally low unless the grapes are picked very early, in which case they are much less aromatic. Autonel is the palest of the Muscats in terms of color as well as character. But the fact that it ripens earlier than the most, uh, the more aromatic Muscat Blanc et Petit Grands and Muscat of Alexandria gives it appeal in cooler, glowing regions. It is the most important of the Muscat something varieties in France, mainly in Alsace for exuberantly grapey wines, which labeled are labeled Muscat d'Alsace that finish off dry or off dry. Total French plantings in 2008 were 165 hectares or 408 acres. Uh, in Switzerland, there are just four hectares, ten acres, mainly for light dry wines. But Austria had 472 hectares, 1,166 acres of Muscat Autonel in 2007, which is up from 408 hectares in uh, 1999, mostly in Neuseedle Sie or Neuseedle Ugerland for sweet wines, although there are 110 hectares. Uh, distributed in rather small pockets in Niederösterreich, which is Lower Austria, or the regions on other side of the Donau, which is the, Don the Danube. So it, it's also grown in Hungary, uh, and it's also grown in uh, Romania. Some uh, Bulgaria's got a little bit. Some minor plantings in Russia near Krasnodar, also the Czech Republic, and also in the Republic of Moldova. So what was the main one with the 400 acres plus? Uh, the main one with the 472 acres, hectares, was um, Austria. Huh. Oh, okay. The history of Ohio wine begins, as I mentioned before, with Nicholas Lonsworth playing Alexander Isabella and then Catawba. And then his um, 
Catawba was what uh, really just blew everything away uh, in terms of competition. Uh, it was growing there till the late 1850s and 1860s when Black Rot destroyed the vineyards. And then uh, Prohibition actually didn't quite kill um, in Ohio. The reason being is because most vineyards were converted to Concord for juice production. And then uh, that was where the Ohio industry began, was with Concord, or re-began with Concord. Uh, and then also some of these just turned to making juice in between, like uh, Myers Wine Cellar, uh, which makes practically no wine. Uh, <laughs> everything I've seen online for them is like sparkling Catawba juice and, and stuff like that. The, the modern industry sort of really begins in the 1960s and 70s with the starting planting of uh, vinifera. Unlike a lot of other states that we've talked about in this podcast, farm winery legislation was not really needed to aid its growth. The Ohio Grape Industries Program, the Ohio Agricultural Research Development Center, and also the Ohio Wine Producers Association have really done a lot of great work in, in getting... Ohio wine off the ground. Uh, and actually, nowadays, Ohio, uh, according to uh, Wikipedia, as of 2018, Ohio was the sixth largest wine producer in the United States, which wow. boggles my mind. Yeah, it's, I it's, never would have thought that. Me either. Never would have. There are today five AVAs, uh, huh. partially or completely located in the state. You've got the Grand River Valley AVA. Isle St. George AVA, Lake Erie AVA, which I believe this is part of uh, this vintage here, the Lorami Creek AVA, and the Ohio River Valley AVA. So uh, that's uh, the history in a nutshell. We'll, we'll get more into history in, in future uh, Ohio episodes because uh, everyone's itching for the special wine number two of tonight. Yes. What's uh, that? Tomato wine. Oh, I can't wait. I know, right? <laughs> uh, so, yes, uh, spoiler alert, next episode is North Dakota. Oh, uh, wow. But I'm, I honestly really like this Plein Air Method Ancestral. I am a geek and I like pet gnats. What did you guys think? Very light, uh, unassuming, mm-hmm. enjoyable. And again, that metallic character and the aroma was something I'd never really encountered. Yeah, that aroma is a lot of fun. Before. Uh, but yes, I mean, as Joe said, this would be an excellent first course mm-hmm. meal pairing with the salad portion of the meal. Yeah, Very get, like, the or strawberry one. Honestly, <laughs> pound this in the high summer. <laughs> uh, you know, when it's a hundred degrees outside here in Arizona, this would be a great porch pounder. Mm-hmm. It just makes me crave fresh baked bread and stinky cheese. For, I, I, I don't. I'm just maybe I'm hungry. No, <laughs> but I'm with you. This no, would be that would be a really good pairing, like a it's really good like strawberry. It's interesting. I like the wildness. I mean, I do like. I like yeah, that. it's definitely not. It doesn't fit into any category. No, my brain boxes. didn't really know what to do with it. I've, I've never tasted anything like that, and I couldn't really put it in any Mm-mm. in any uh, category. I feel but. like it'd be good with like Greek food. <gasps> I could see that. Yeah, like lamb. Oh, bring it. Yeah. Something. Oh yeah, feta cheese and yeah, and oh. feta cheese. That's hummus, what I could want to say on the on the salad hummus? if they did that. Yeah, yeah, I feel yeah. like this would be good. Yeah, yeah, food. yeah. Good point. That's that would be awesome. Yeah, I like this. I like. Mm-hmm. I think it's fun. I like the idea of uh, the the Pline Air mm-hmm. style of painting on the on the label combined with the sort of Pline Air style of yeah, natural cool. fermentation, mm-hmm. as it were, Very almost. Cool. Yeah. Uh, they play well together. I I think this is a, a really fantastic wine. Yeah, it's a lot of fun. But on that note, uh, let's make America great again. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> 
Cheers, guys. Cheers. This was an episode of the Make America Grape Again podcast, sponsored, produced, and recorded by Cody Burkett, the Arizona wine monk. You can reach us at makeamericagrapepodcast at gmail.com, on Instagram at, at the AZ Wine Monk, or on Twitter at CV Burkett. Be sure to also check out our website, makeamericagrapeagainpodcast.com.